0: Every day, victims and survivors of domestic abuse tell us about concerns around the family courts. In this podcast, Rachel Azan talks to Olive from Rights of Women and Ursula, a Safe Lives pioneer and co-founder of Voices, about how the family courts are operating during the COVID-19 crisis. They discuss the concerns and issues raised by survivors and also the impact family court proceedings can have. In the podcast links, we've listed a number of useful organisations who can provide help, support and information at this time, so please take a look.
1: Welcome to Olive and Ursula. Thanks so much for joining with me for this podcast. Um, We're going to talk about how the Family Court is operating during the current COVID-19 related restrictions. Um, we asked people to send in their queries or concerns so we could cover the types of issues that people are currently experiencing um so we just want to say a massive thank you to people who sent in those questions um we've pulled out the general themes which we're going to go through um and we might not be able to answer the specifics of cases though so um for anyone that needs advice and support we've put links to advice lines and websites and the information about this podcast So, firstly, I thought it would be helpful to go through what changes have been made due to COVID-19. Olive, can you give us an overview of how the Family Court is running at the moment?
0: Yeah, so the Family Court is still open in hearing cases, but they have made changes to the way they're hearing those cases. Um, So, they're prioritising care cases, uh, injunction applications, and any kind of urgent cases that simply can't wait until the end of this. And they are hearing all of those cases remotely, so either over telephone or video conferencing. And there's a very small number of cases that are happening in person where people are still going into the court, but those are really only cases where it's not possible for them to take place remotely and the hearing absolutely has to go ahead. Okay, thank you.
1: so ideally, survivors would have legal support in place. Um, just thought it might be useful to kind of talk about the best way for survivors to find legal advice, especially if this, they're new to this um, and whether there are kind of any changes at the moment to how that's happening.
0: Yeah, it's still possible very much so to get legal advice um, in exactly the same way as you would have before. so for law firms are still open, they're still dealing with cases taking um, on new clients, uh, it's still possible to make an application for legal aid and to get legal aid in place at the moment. Um, so all of that's still happening, but it's all happening remotely. So you contact a solicitor by telephone and you might organise to speak to them um, over Skype or discuss the case over telephone and by email. Um, and make arrangements to make an application for legal aid in that way as well. One of the ways that you can start to think about it is you could contact uh, the Rights of Women, Family Law Advice Line or the FLOWS project to uh, get an assessment of legal aid eligibility to, so to discuss whether or not you're eligible for legal aid and if you're not, um, what whether or not there's some other options to get any type of support legal support or otherwise um, and to get a bit of legal advice as well and we can find post you to legal aid solicitors or you can do a search online for your local legal aid solicitors or legal aid solicitors elsewhere given that everybody's working remotely they don't have to be uh, where you are they can be in any other part of the country so if you're struggling to find someone near you then go somewhere else um, as long as they're in England and Wales and you can still get a solicitor. In terms of legal aid changes, there haven't been um, any really big changes, but there have been some little changes that are probably quite important for domestic abuse support services. So if they, if you're a domestic abuse support service and you're providing uh, what we call gateway evidence for legal aid, that evidence no longer has to be on letter headed paper. It can just be from a, a professional email address. Um, it still has to have all of the same information. It just they've removed that requirement that it's on letter headed paper, and they've removed a couple of requirements like that for other types of evidence as well. It's like as long as it's as long as the gateway evidence kind of comes from a professional email address, then it's going to be acceptable. It doesn't have to be the formal letter headed uh, letter that it, it used to be. So there have been a, a few small changes, but one of the things that either flows or we would be able to do is is talk you through what evidence you might have or where you might be able to get that evidence that you need.
1: If you've got a case um, that's already been running, um, but I don't know, you're sort of unsure about whether you would qualify for legal aid, even if you haven't done that at the start of a case, is it still worth giving you guys a call, just checking that out and just to be sure?
0: Definitely. Um, If you're not sure, and you've never had a legal aid assessment, then give us a call or give those projects a call and we'll do that assessment with you.
1: And I guess people might have a change in circumstances at the moment as well. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It might be worth It's
0: very at. possible you weren't eligible and now if your financial circumstances change, you might be eligible at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about um, that
1: you know being able to use a solicitor that's not necessarily local to you and because i know some areas really struggle don't they with legal aid solicitors that might that might make that a bit easier um and also i don't know if there's been any sort of in your experience with survivors at the moment any sort of difficulties finding solicitors or is that just the same as it was before from what you're seeing
2: i can't say that we have um uh specific feedback on on new problems around that um more concern about whether people are actually feeling able to make contact in the first place, and given that the window of opportunity to do so is, can be really shrunk at this time, so we're focused as far as possible on being as accessible as possible um if people are able to contact a local service um if they're not finding it possible to identify. Um, so this, by the means already described, they, they, their local service may be able to, to to give them a better picture of what's available locally and and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it? So local advocacy services will have links with and those sort of um, firms or law centres in their area. So yeah, just uh, don't kind of hold back, kind of reach out as quickly as you can and find find what's available.
2: And CAB may have um, some. Support available around
1: that as well. Lovely, thank you. Um, so, in the feedback that we've had um, from survivors, a real prominent issue of concern has been around remote hearings, um, whether by phone or video. Um, the sorts of issues that they've raised are having young children at home and no one to look after them. So no one to look after them while they're then taking part in a hearing. So worrying about children overhearing, what's being said, um, especially in a small space. Um, and then the general impact of having kids in the house and managing their kind of anxiety and fear and sometimes a sort of traumatic experience of being involved in a hearing um, whilst also trying to kind of manage and look after the children. Um so, Olive, what advice can you give about remote hearings and the kind of practicalities around those and those concerns?:
0: Yeah, I mean we're really worried about this as well, about the practicalities of remote hearings and how it's all working at the moment. and I'll be honest that we don't we don't really know the answer to a lot of these questions, um, but we have written a guide on what you should expect from the court in terms of remote hearings and the first question that the court should be asking itself is whether or not it's possible for a remote hearing to take place and for that to still be a fair hearing. Um, so some of those issues that you've raised about um, you know, children overhearing, what's being said, uh, just general childcare responsibilities, managing a hearing when you're at home without any proper support. If those are issues that mean you're not going to be able to access a fair trial, or there's going to be a breach of your right to a fair trial, then the first thing you need to do is raise it with the court, and you can ask for the hearing to be adjourned, which just means put off um, to a later date. And if um if that if that's what's necessary to ensure a fair hearing takes place, then that is what should happen. Um we don't like I said we don't really know a lot of the detail about exactly what's happening on the ground um if there are courts that are going ahead with hearings even after those kinds of issues have been raised and they've been told that this isn't it's not possible for this to go ahead fairly, and the court's still insisting on it going ahead, then um certainly we'd really like to know if that's happening um and you can also. Actually, whether your experiences of remote hearings are positive or negative, the Transparency Project is uh, conducting a survey from, they want to hear from parents who are involved in remote hearings about what their experiences are. Um, And we'll have a link to it in the information so that if you're experiencing those kinds of problems or you've got positive experiences, you want to share whatever your experiences are, they want to know about it. So they're collecting together what, um what what's actually happening for parents rather than for us lawyers and what our experiences of the process is because we are worried about that as well.
2: So if if like you say, so if
1: you if that's a situation um and that you don't feel that you're going to be able to participate properly in a in a hearing, then you raise that you feed that back to the court. If the court say no, it's got to go ahead anyway, um are there any options for appealing that?
0: yeah there is i think the first thing um is it kind of depends i mean exactly how you deal with it is going to partly depend on how it's raised and when the kind of timing of it all so if you are able to if a judge if a court has made a decision that they're going to go ahead with the hearing even after you said to them i can't have a right to my on my right to a fair hearing is going to be breached if this goes ahead then and you have time to get an appeal in quickly, then you can do it that way. Or if you think that's just not going to be possible because of this timing of what's happening, um, then one of the really uh, helpful things you can do is make sure that you prepare a position statement, get that position statement into the court before the hearings as quickly as possible um in your position statement, you want to be saying uh firstly about your your breach to right of a fair trial, a fair hearing, and then dealing with in the rest of your position statement, dealing with what are the points you would be making to the court about the actual case if you were there. You I know, mean, what are the things that you would want the court to know for that decision that they're gonna be making so that if the hearing goes ahead without you. They at least have, you know, something from you in writing saying these are the points that you want to the court to address. And then you might still want to appeal after that anyway. Um, And we'll include a link to our guide to how to write a position statement for family court hearings. Um, So it's kind of how you deal with it is partly going to depend on timing and, and what you can do in the time before the hearing.
1: So being really clear about why why you it's not possible for you to participate and then also setting out, you know, what you would say in that hearing, what the key points are, yeah. um, and that's great. So if we have the link to the guidance that talks about position statements, um, and I guess, again, somebody could ring and get some advice from the, the helpline yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, and... I don't know, because I suppose one of the kind of questions that we had raised to us was about whether survivors are at a disadvantage in these situations, or whether, um, you know, when they sort of think about what the outcomes of that case might be, that if they're trying to manage all of this and go ahead with hearings or if they're not able to attend, like how either the court perceives them or whether they're just straight away at a disadvantage. I don't know if you've got any views on that.
0: I mean, this type of scenario we're talking about, where the reason somebody's not able to attend a hearing, and I guess in my mind, I'm also thinking about people who are representing themselves, because that's what uh, the largest number of our callers are are representing themselves. They're not able to get legal aid. Um, so in that type of scenario, I cannot see how you could argue that survivors wouldn't be at a disadvantage in that situation. It just seems that it's obvious it's going to have a negative impact on the outcome of the case. If you're not there to to make the arguments that you need to make, um, I guess if you have representation and your representative is there, but you're not, then there's at least a little bit of a kind of a safety measure in place. But even then it's, you know, it's difficult for hearings to go ahead without the party actually being there. Um I mean, You know, certainly be somewhere it's fine and it's not going to make any difference. And as long as your lawyer is able to make a call to you during the hearing and have a quick chat or if something comes up, they can call you and say, you know, this thing's come up. What do you think about this or or whatever it is? um, Then there's probably not so much of a disadvantage. But certainly for unrepresented parties, absolutely,
1: mm-hmm. they're at a
0: disadvantage.
1: It's such a big decision to make, isn't it? I just think like if you're, you know, it's a terrifying prospect, isn't it, going through family court process and as you hear it all the time and just think to make a decision if you're representing yourself and you've got, you know, you've got your children, they're young, there's just no way of kind of managing them and participating in that. Like how do you, you know, to make that judgment call about saying, I'm, I'm actually, I'm just not going to attend and I'm going to set out the same. That's quite a big, it's quite a hard decision to make, isn't it? I guess it's sort of. Um, I don't know. It just feels really important that they just try and speak to you, to you guys or to someone to kind of talk that through a little bit.
0: Absolutely. It's a massive decision. I mean, I will, I don't want to be too negative about it because the family courts are still kind of feeling their way and that we have heard so far. I don't think in that situation, a hearing would go ahead without an unrepresented party, but i mean we we don't know everything that goes on across the country. that's why I said if that did happen we'd we'd definitely want to know about it. We'd want to hear from that person um because I think I think actually it probably wouldn't but I think sometimes the family court surprises you with what they do <laughs> indeed indeed um
1: so as though so you kind of sort of clients that you're working with have they had an experience of remote hearings yet is there these sort of similar issues that you're hearing about
0: yeah uh,
2: we will have we have some schedule, but we haven't had anyone um, have to go through, go through one yet. Um, but I think that the impact on people's anxiety levels, given that people are particularly isolated, who perhaps were already isolated because of their experiences, um, the impact of um, anticipation and uncertainty about these things is certainly um, very real. And I think for people who are in that situation, it's so common to feel that um you should be managing this better or um, there's something about you that means that you you're not um dealing with these these core cool processes as well as others which i think it is expressed was expressed by people before lockdown i think just to make clear these are these are big things so it, it is quite normal to find them very difficult and it is not wrong or um people shouldn't feel ashamed of asking for help and support around that. Um, this isn't about um, any sense of weakness or not managing. This is about um, having to manage something which is is complex and and not um, you know in, in a language and so on, which is not um, the language of normal everyday life. So I think, um, as Olive said, and I think what she said is will be really helpful actually. But um, you know that this is not uh, something that a person can go through easily without support. So, I mean, one issue would be um, around the informal support that people might normally have with a court hearing, um, about trusted people to uh, talk to beforehand, to um, debrief after a hearing, um, having um, emotional support with you. Um, to get to go to court and come back again a lot of these things fall away with the remote hearing and I I think the courts are going to have to take on board what that might mean for for our clients
1: yeah definitely that's really important is because I guess you know it's this would be a stressful and difficult process if you're in your best place within yourself but you know if you're just You've been experiencing domestic abuse potentially not long come out of that um relationship or even if it's however long down the line that um that this will kind of impact on a you're know, in a difficult place already and you're right in terms of thinking about how you can get support around um, the process and i know that you've been thinking about whether there are ways to provide support even through the remote hearings and i imagine that's who's going to be quite new to this process as well but whether there's a way of using social distancing but still being able to have somebody with you or be in a not at your home and be in a different location when you're um doing the remote hearings to say a kind of support service office um and just trying to think about whether there are ways to provide that support in a different way now
2: yeah i mean as Olive said i don't think um we know exactly what um what the right answer, so-called right answer would be, but to be creative and, and, um, and, uh, acknowledge people's very real challenges in, in dealing with court hearings in these circumstances to think, are there other ways to perhaps support people, um, in the ways you mentioned? So we're actively looking at that. Um, and we'll see what proves possible, obviously, to do something within, um, the bounds, the confines of the the medical um, concerns that we all have around the pandemic. I think also we mustn't forget the impact on children of of both the isolation of well the lockdown itself and um, uh, the increased anxiety for parents who are um, facing who, or who may be in the middle of, of court processes.
1: Mm-hmm thanks i think it's really important to think about the children through all of this isn't it and what support they might need like you say around um covid19 but also the experience of going through the family court um i think there are some different resources online that we can add some links into in the um for the podcast um and perhaps when we put this podcast out, if there are people that have got specific resources or things that they think are really useful, then perhaps kind of tweet about those as well and um, we can kind of bring some resources together. Um, But it's worth checking as well whether local services like the domestic abuse services have support for children and young people, because some will, and it might be worth linking children into specific support for themselves as well. We're going to talk about um, the sort of different stages of um, family court processes Um, and some of the kind of queries and concerns that we had about those. Um, So starting with new applications. So as Olive said at the beginning, um, family courts will um, take new applications for various types of orders. Um, Is there anything that survivors should be aware of around making new applications?
0: Uh, They've changed the way that they're... um the way that you should make applications now where unless there's some reason why you're not able to access email or or get online um, you can make your applications now via email so that's for injunctions emergency injunctions you can apply by email for uh, child arrangements orders or any of the orders that you might need in relation to children whether that's um child arrangements or perhaps prohibited steps orders or specific issues orders if there's something has gone wrong and you need to ask the court for some kind of emergency order in relation to the children um, the court will receive those applications online now or sorry by email but you need to check what court you're sending it to because they have closed some courts and some courts are still open but uh and kind of open completely and then others are open but only staff so they're not being used for kind of people um so we have kind of all of the links to the relevant information from the court service in our remote guidance lovely
1: thank you um some of the concerns uh that people raised were um about perpetrators making new applications, but they're repeaters, so they've been through the um, court process before, um, but using the current situation to find um, new angles. Is there a, kind of anything different around if perpetrators are making new applications?
0: I, mean, I think one of the things to be aware of is that if it's not an urgent application and there's no kind of child protection issues, the court is probably not going to be dealing with it particularly quickly at the moment it's going to take some time before it gets a hearing and if once it gets to that stage of having a first hearing if some of those things that we discussed around remote hearings if that means that you're going to struggle to attend the the first hearing then you can ask for it to be adjourned instead um, because they are prioritizing those urgent cases um, and like I said, injunctions and care proceedings. So if it's non-urgent, it's a, a repeat application. It sounds like it's probably not got anything particularly new or exciting in it. Then most courts, I think, at the moment would would probably be putting those kinds of applications right at the bottom of the list of priorities of what they're dealing with. Okay, thank you. Um, and
1: so if this is a kind of the first time going through the court process and coming up for a first hearing, um, so survivors raising kind of anxieties about about this, um, about potentially sort of seeing or, or hearing perpetrates for the first time, um, and not having any support in place for this. Um, is that anything that the court have considered about how kind of emotional support can be provided?
0: No, they haven't. I mean like like we said and like Ursula said as well, we the court is still kind of feeling its way through this and they don't really know what all of the right answers are so those types of things if that's something that you're particularly worried about then i think raise it with the court um, and tell them that that's what you're worried about and that's why you don't think this hearing is going to be able to go ahead um, and see if you can reach out and get some support whether that's domestic abuse support service, trying to get some legal supports, finding out whether you're eligible for legal aid, um, you try and do all of those things. And we're kind of of working our way through all of these different scenarios.
1: Yeah, so it sort of sounds like potentially that legal services will be thinking about that. And obviously, as has described, sort of support services thinking about um, ways in which they can provide that. So from going cases that had already been um in the system before covid19 um will they just continue as is or like you say will they be prioritized depending on the type of case
0: they'll be prioritized depending on the type of case and lots of contact cases are being adjourned um but it's it varies a lot across the country because it's partly dependent on individual resources in those areas whether or not they've got the Tech available, the judges that can manage the tech, all of those different things. So I mean, certainly some areas I've heard have just taken all of their private children cases and adjourned every single one for the next few weeks. Um, others are still kind of going through and trying to have hearings, if you know, assessing each one, can we have a hearing for this one? Um, yes or no, and working through them all um, in that way. So. There's no straightforward answer. Your hearing might go ahead and it might not. But what the courts are doing is they're trying to reach out to everybody who has hearings coming up, either by email or telephone, um, to let them know what they're thinking about in relation to their case. And that's the opportunity to raise any of these concerns that we've been talking about with the court.
1: So potentially they ask about an option to have a remote hearing if there are these sorts of concerns that like we've outlined that would be the time to say practicalities are doing that would be really difficult Yeah. Um, and, and if there's, so whatever if it does get paused so whatever's in place around contact at that time remains, there's no, there shouldn't be any pressure on survivors then to alter no. do you think, without it having gone through the proper process
0: No, absolutely not um, whatever's in place will stay in place um, I mean that's doesn't mean that if they don't want to agree something alternative, they can. But there shouldn't be any pressure put on them to agree something alternative at all. Okay. Um,
2: now, so again, is there anything
1: in there that that sort of chimes with the experiences of your clients at the moment, or is it like you're saying, quite early days around finding out whether the cases are continuing or not?
2: It's early days about um, in terms of finding out where where the And how cases would continue, I think. Um, But a lot of the issues around um, those orders are very much um, in people's minds. And it's a large part of what people bring to us at the present time. Um, Concerns around perhaps um, handovers that were being managed by family members um, no longer being possible. Some people obviously having to travel some distance for child contact um, uh, in line with orders um, then also costs associated with that we've got to remember that a lot of people as with the wider population that there can be um, big changes in people's financial or working situations um, some um, victims um, may also be key workers so there are a lot of issues that compound what we've talked about that may be um, we can't address everything in this but they they all play a part and we'd hope that the courts will take account of that the complexities that people are having to deal with and not see everything through the lens of um, compliance or uh, for example alienation and and, uh, conflict issues that um, tend to be raised in in this area of of family law
1: yeah yeah so it's not sort of as simple as things just essentially just staying as is until the case resumes but whatever the sort of arrangements are in place might not be um, as easy to to do um and that's a really good point it's about third party um and I wonder whether there needs to be some clarity around that in some ways about whether um yeah that's really difficult isn't it again I guess that's going to be case by case but if there isn't a third party to um say kind of take the kids between the parents like should that i don't know as a domestic abuse worker and my kind of thought is that, that therefore the contact shouldn't happen but what should it happen in some different way but I don't know if there's any kind of guidance around that as well.
0: No there isn't but I mean I'm inclined to agree with you from a legal point of view as well that if an order says um, handover is meant to take place by a third party and the guidance in terms of the government guidance around coronavirus and stay at home although it says yes children can travel between it doesn't say that you're allowed to get a third and maybe a fourth household or, or you know people involved in that. Um, and I think actually that means that those grandparents in this in this scenario are not going to be able to manage handover and, and that means that contact, face to face contact, perhaps can't go ahead unless some other arrangements can be agreed.
1: Because I suppose it's well, I think that the sort of safety of survivors and children is paramount um, and the, the sort of safety plans that are in place, the risk management plans are in place, or so there might be a normalisation or order, other orders that sit alongside it. But that's the prevalent point and the decisions have to be made yeah on that basis.
0: I mean, it, it kind of hypothetically imagining ourselves a few months on, Um, having to deal retrospectively with decisions that are made now, the arguments that I would be making about those types of decisions is that if the court made an order, yes, they made an order for contact, but they specifically included in that order that it was necessary for somebody else to do the handover as a way of keeping both the victim and the children safe, then it's not safe for the victim to do it herself. You know, the court has made that decision already, this is what's safe in this scenario. So my you know, kind of envisaging situation months down the line, that's what my argument would be, that it was perfectly reasonable to say direct contact not going to be able to take place because the court said it was only safe with the third party doing the handover. Now, I think when it comes to orders that are currently in place, there is a... What the president of the family division calls this the spirit of the order, which is that contact should still be happening, does suggest that in that type of scenario, other forms of contact should be considered. So virtual contact, remote, Skype, telephone, um, depending on everybody's individual circumstances. But uh, it's, it's absolutely about safety. And if the court has decided that it's only safe with a third party doing the handover, then that means that that's that's when it's safe.
1: Yeah. So there's a question about um, the voice of the child through the process. Um, I guess that maybe that's one of the considerations about pausing a case, but as far as you're aware, that would be the same as they ought to be doing anyway and ensuring that the sort of views of children involved are taken into account.
0: Yeah. I mean, we know that caf are working remotely. And they're trying to conduct, uh, certainly, meetings and assessments remotely. I don't know how well that's going or how well they are monitoring or assessing whether or not it is actually working. Um, I can I can kind of see in future reports that are being prepared by CAFCAS and being questioned. By the court or by the parties, either of the parties, if they don't agree with them, to say, well, you conducted this assessment remotely, you didn't see me with the children. You see, you know, a, a contact parent saying that. Um, so, how robust those assessments will be, I think, is is going to be up for debate as we move forward. But I know that they are trying to have assessments go yeah. ahead remotely
2: if possible yeah but I guess there'll
1: be different challenges to that depending on um, you know sort of age and yeah. the kids
2: will not
0: they
1: yeah. um, okay and then there was a sort of final one we sort of touched on a bit about um, safety plans but about what um, survivors can do if, if they feel a judge has made a decision or an order that's unsafe for them or goes against their safety plan Um would that be a kind of an appeal process, or?
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if a judge makes a decision that's that's unsafe, then uh, the only way to challenge that is to appeal it. Yeah. Okay. And there'll be
1: guidance on with rights of women about how to do we that. Have that guidance on that how to be.
0: appeal a family court decision. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: thank you. Um, So current orders and we've sort of been talking about this a little bit as well but just where there are already um, orders in place like contact orders um, so there's been a lot of feedback about concerns around these
0: Yeah, so the President's um, published some guidance on contact arrangements during this period and he says a very brief summary of what he says is essentially we need to be following the guidance from the government and from Public Health England um, about staying at home and doing all the things that we're meant to be doing. And if that means that contact arrangements to, in order to comply with that guidance, contact arrangements have to change, then that means contact arrangements are going to have to change. Um, And if a parent wants to make changes in order to make sure that the guidance is complied with and the other parent doesn't agree, then it is possible for them to do that, to make those changes unilaterally. But um, if the court has ordered contact, then there is, you know, the basic idea that contact should be happening is what what he calls the spirit of the order, means that uh, there should be proposals put forward for alternative forms of contact and we can be as creative about that as we want. And that's going to be different for every single person. We've already talked about all of the different kind of scenarios, like having key workers at home that, you know, creates additional problems, having to travel far for contact. That's another thing that might lead to there needing to be changes. Having a parent. Um, at home, or perhaps a family member in the household who falls into one of those um, much higher risk categories who need to shield because they're at much higher risk of serious complications if they contract COVID. Um, all of those different factors will will play out differently for each child and each family. Um, so it's really, really difficult to kind of say, this is what should happen in every situation. But the, the basics of what he says is, You've got to follow the health guidance on COVID. That means staying at home. Yes, children can travel between parents, but only if that's what is safe in those in that family's particular circumstances. Uh
1: so a comment that we had was that the kind of guidance from the court was vague and flaky. Um because it's it's yeah it's sort of very nice. best like you say there's so many different scenarios i guess it's tricky for the court to be able to outline different scenarios but um you know that if somebody if the court don't agree with the decision that somebody's made then this could cause a lot of problems for survivors later down the line um yeah do you do you think it is flaky i
0: think it's um tra- it's i don't think it's flaky I'm going to disagree with um, your commenter. I think it's probably the as much as he could have said in the circumstances, and I suspect he would have been criticised um, both ways. So I know there are a number of people criticising him for not, not dealing with some particular situations or being more detailed in his guidance. and. I suspect that if he had tried to be more ge- more detailed, then some of the criticisms would have been, well, you haven't covered my situation or what about all of these people who, who deal with this? And, and I think it would just have been far too difficult for him to get into uh, more detailed guidance because he's the president of the family division and he has to speak to every court user. Um, I mean, in our guidance, so we've prepared some guidance as well on child contact uh, during this time we have been more detailed because we're only speaking to our service users. We're not speaking to everybody. Um, so we've dealt with some of the most common kind of questions that we were being asked, the most common scenarios that were coming up on our advice line um, initially straight after the lockdown was implemented. Um, and I think ultimately that, that concern that the, um, sorry the, the whoever it was that wrote that comment about kind of further down the line enforcement applications and having to justify your decisions now in three months or six months time I'm I completely understand that concern I do think um, I also have concerns about the fallout from all of this and what's going to happen and how the courts are going to respond to it but at the moment the best thing that we can do that that victims can do is read the coronavirus guidance about staying at home, about those categories of people that need to be shielding and taking extra measures and make sure that whatever it is you're proposing or the decisions that you make are in line with that guidance and set that out in writing to the abuser to the other side clearly saying here's a link to the guidance, here's why I'm I'm making changes or I'm proposing we make changes, here's what alternative contact proposals I'm going to suggest in the short term and we'll have to keep under review as the guidance changes because the guidance is going to change over time and it's not going to go overnight from the scenario we're in now to all of a sudden being back to normal. Things are going to, very slowly change in contact arrangements are going to have to slowly be reviewed over that time as well. And if the perpetrator or the abuser doesn't agree, well, as long as you're following the guidance on the health guidance on stopping the spread of, of coronavirus, then you should be, well, in theory, you should be fine. Mm-hmm.
1: And I suppose in the, some of the comments that we've had is where it goes the other way, where a perpetrator then is like, actually, I'm not going to let the child come back to you because, and using the guidance to um, justify where, you know, sort of survivors are getting in touch and don't agree with that. Um, so again, is it just setting out your position almost to that person? If you can mm-hmm. do that directly, or I guess to, to your third party. Mm-hmm. And then if there's no agreement, then it goes to court at that point, but you've got to show that you've tried
0: yeah you i mean it's a general position unless there really really is absolutely if there's absolutely no contact at all then um contact must be taking place through someone um if there's absolutely no contact between the victim and the abuser so um communicating that via them is uh, the best way And you've got to be really clear and straightforward in your communication and I mean, that that scenario where a perpetrator is keeping a child at at the end of contact and not returning them, that's a slightly different scenario. If the child lives with the victim and a perpetrator is keeping a child in breach of a court order, if they, again, if the reason why they're saying really does fall within the kind of public health guidance, which the only scenario I can kind of envisage in that situation would be where a child or someone in the in the household has developed symptoms then you wait the depending on who it is either the seven days or the 14 days and the child i would expect to be returned at the end of that period or if the reason is just a, a a nonsense um then you make an urgent application to the court because they're in breach of the order. They've not returned the child. The child lives with you. And the application you're making, it's, I mean, you can make an application for an enforcement order, but what you probably really want to do is make an application for a specific issues order to have the court make an urgent order that the child is returned to your care in line with the order that's currently in place. Okay, thank you. So where contact orders
1: were were contact? No, sorry again. So where contact was supervised by a third party, so it could be a family member or at a contact centre, um, what happens now with those if they can't take place
2: there?
0: One of the things that contact centres are starting to do is, not all contact centres, but some of them that are staying open, is um Trying to supervise contact via Skype um, or remotely in some way. And we've certainly heard of uh, what I would consider some pretty bad practice when it comes to some contact centres and their uh, risk assessment of whether or not Skype is a suitable forum for contact to take place. They have, this, I mean, there are some contact centres doing a really good job um And really managing the situation well, working with survivors and discussing what's going to be right for them. But we have heard of a couple where they are putting a lot of pressure on victims to agree to Skype contact. And that form of contact for a victim where um a perpetrator is basically stepping virtually into their home can be a really... Um, Intrusive way for contact to take place. I think one of the things I would say, you know, where I have heard bad practice from some contact centres is that if your order says that you are to make a child available for contact at a contact centre, then your legal obligation is to make the child available for contact at the contact centre, and that cannot happen at the moment. It is not to allow Skype contact. So if you're in that scenario and you feel like that Skype contact is going to be just too intrusive, it's going to be very triggering, it's, it's really going to um, upset the kind of balance that you've created in your home and the safety that you've created for you and your children in your home, you do not have to agree to it, whatever the contact centre says. Um, contact can take place by a telephone but even if that is too much you don't have to agree to it the requirement under an order for contact to take place in a contact centre is for you to make the child available for contact in the contact centre not anywhere else Um, so certainly if you are being pressured into agreeing something like that that you feel very very uncomfortable with you don't have to agree to it
1: okay thank you if a perpetrator was found to be misusing guidance bre- in breaching an order, is there anything a court can put in place to stop and keep doing that?
0: It depends on the situation and exactly what it is they're doing. I mean, at the moment, if if somebody is um, putting a child at risk or other members of the household perhaps at risk and, are, and is breaching guidance, then um, you might want to stop contact if you know that that's what they're doing. Or if a, a perpetrator is keeping a child at the end of contact, we kind of already talked about, if, if they don't have any reason to be doing that, which, like I said, I can't imagine any reason other than where somebody's developing symptoms, um, then the court can make an emergency order for the child to be returned to the Primary carer. Um, whether they can stop them stop it happening again. Well, if that kind of situation arises at the moment, then perhaps the way to stop it happening again is is that actually face to face contact is going to have to stop during this period. Um, it kind of depends on the individual scenario, and it it might be that there isn't much that the court can do to stop it happening again. There are scenarios where it is very difficult for the court to stop some things happening or it might be that it, uh, what needs to happen is that perhaps the court needs to make some form of emergency order and then make some alterations to the child arrangements order um, to perhaps tighten up some of the uh, restrictions that are in place around it or perhaps put a non molestation order in place as well as the child arrangements order. It, it's kind of going to depend on the individual scenario um, whether or not the court can stop it happening again mm, okay
1: okay um so do you feel like there are there other issues that we've we've not covered that you're you're hearing about with um, kind of current and existing orders
2: I think just um, it is coming up quite a lot about and in the interaction with um, perpetrators who are raising the issue of parental alienation or suggesting um, that because a, um, because a report on what the child did in the week when they were with the main carer wasn't um, exhaustive enough, that they are going to um, use this to take back to court or form part of a, of a case. It might be quite unspecific or quite quite small things that are raised as as problems but that can be quite impactful in terms of being quite major stresses for um for the victim. So again I think certainly for us as a support service, um helping to helping people to make informed choices and feel less stressed about where the boundaries lie, it can be hugely helpful. So I think again everything that Oliver said will be really valuable to people trying to navigate um to, to feel sure about that where they stand is is justified um obviously i i would agree that um that the spirit of the law is what um uh and is what um McFarlane was describing um and and confirming both parties need to need to observe um, and and, and the, that advice can't be exhaustive enough to apply to every single case. But equally, um, the challenge for individuals is that in their case, there might be some quite inventive ways of putting pressure on them, making them feel uncertain or confused. And so, I think people's ability to access ad hoc support around um, maybe um, checking out something, the, the legal their legal standing on a, on a particular issue, um, particularly if they don't qualify for legal aid. Um, and also having the support of a specialist organisation or somebody to, a trusted person to talk through these issues is just so valuable to good outcomes. And I agree with Olive that a lot of this, I can imagine, will be um, will be discussed at a later stage. So for, for a lot of what we're looking at is how can people manage these mental health impacts and the stresses and strains of this period while perhaps um, they're waiting for hearings that are being adjourned yeah my
1: isolation I guess from lockdown and um, you know, engaging with services differently or not being sure if services are going to be running in the same way then like you say if there's like lots of things happening that aren't necessarily clear-cut or just quite confusing or that it's just makes it so important to try and get that advice doesn't it and talk things through and know what options are Um, and I think think, kind of
2: sorry I was just going to say that also the, the responsibility for the uncertainty and the confusion and the kind of flakiness does mainly lie with the perpetrator exploiting um, any lack of clarity or any uncertainty around a particular legal issue. And again, I hope that the courts take on board um, not only the behaviours of victims, but the behaviours of perpetrators around these, this area and the possibility of um, these legal processes being used as a, um, a further um, opportunity to exert coercive control over victims after separation.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's kind of such an ongoing concern, isn't it? And like you say, this sort of potentially provides yet more opportunities to, to use the court in that way. Um, and I think sort of when we talked about this podcast before that, um, that you described the impact of one of the impacts of doing the remote hearings of, um, being in your home environment attending a hearing and if that's quite traumatic and quite triggering then you've got that association within the home as well and I guess like you were talking about of trying to think about different ways to um to try and manage that whether that's with the support of a service but um whether there are tools also that um we can kind of put out for survivors around managing sort of anxiety and those sort of trauma symptoms as well
2: yeah, I think there's potentially a lot of, um, a lot of useful resource around um, managing trauma and thinking about safe spaces, trying to keep the home as a safe space. There's an issue around, um, the technology being enabling contact of all kinds and enabling remote hearings potentially, but also being quite invasive and, um, having an impact on a person's home feeling like a safe space. So I think it would be important to access resources and if Safe Lives can make resources available around that, about grounding techniques which can help um, dealing with anxiety, helping children also, um, but perhaps some debriefing uh, work that can be done even without somebody else physically present. And again, the help that other support professionals can offer think the whole area of social emotional and and uh, psychological help around these legal issues is
0: quite key.
1: yeah yeah absolutely and I guess it's sort of um and you're right and we'll we'll put links to some different resources um and for services as well to be thinking about that side of things I guess as well as thinking about the practicalities and about getting kind of legal support and all those things but also thinking about the emotional support side and and um, what tools or support that they can offer, or talk through with somebody, um, so that sort of services are a bit of a step ahead around that as well. I'm thinking about offering that and talking about that with um, with survivors.
2: Yeah, I think that can be quite. All these things are helpful for people to feel that they are have some control and are, have agency in this situation. Um, we know that um, the mental health impact of court on people who've suffered trauma and abuse is is quite well known um, and widely acknowledged. And uh, these are all things that are not inevitable, that that can be mitigated by the right kind of support, even in difficult circumstances like these.
1: Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Um, And we've sort of talked about um, whether there are options to have support during a hearing um, and I guess if there are ways to that a service could do that or whether that's about somebody else doing that is to um, potentially try and get agreement from the court ahead of a hearing that somebody could be present for that hearing as emotional support um not just waiting to the day I guess if possible.
2: I think there might be an issue there as well about in terms of um, as Ali was talking about people accessing their their rights in in this situation if a person is um, suffering from trauma perhaps has a PTSD diagnosis um, their ability to process information um, independently and maybe make notes or be able to comprehend and respond in that situation can be really impacted by trauma but for that to be on the radar really for everyone involved
1: yeah, absolutely. That's really important, isn't it? And if somebody's representing themselves, and that's you know, incredibly important to try and have some other support in place, isn't it, for, for all of those reasons? Yeah, ideally, yes, definitely. So thank you very much. Um, is there anything else either of you you want to add?
0: No, I think that's it
1: thank you for your time and like we've said we're going to put um, lots of links in to the information to the podcast and do have a look at the rights of women guidance um, in relation to COVID-19 it's really detailed um, set out really really clearly um, and
0: yeah thank you thanks thank you